Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Who was Charles Darwin, and what led him to describe what we now call the theory of evolution? These curious questions are ones that I have been following since I was about 10 years old. A few years later, in 1978, I had the good fortune of visiting the Galapagos Islands, 600 miles west of Ecuador in the Pacific Ocean. Charles Darwin visited the Galapagos Islands in 1831 for a month as part of his five-year voyage around the world. There, he saw birds and animals that helped him formulate some of his ideas about evolution that he published 22 years later in 1853. And the world has not been the same since. Now, at a time when concepts of evolution and natural selection are attacked from certain theological and political perspectives, a novel called The Darwin Conspiracy has been written by John Darton, a writer and editor for the New York Times. The Darwin Conspiracy, although fiction, is said by John Darton to be 90% accurate and covers Charles Darwin's life and thinking that led to the publication of Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species, as well as a portion of Darwin's life after the publication of his book. I spoke with John Darton from his home in New York City at the end of October 2005. He begins by describing who Charles Darwin was in his time and in his place. John Darton, welcome to Radio Curious. Well, thank you. It's good to be here, Barry. Let's put Charles Darwin in perspective. Who was he in his period in his life, living in England? Well, he was really one of the great scientists of all time. In fact, though, he was an amateur. He was an amateur naturalist. Um, he, his father very much wanted him to be a doctor. Uh, he could not stand uh, basically the sight of blood, so he washed out as a doctor. And throughout his growing up years, he was just attracted to the natural world. He loved to go looking for beetles and to perform various experiments, and he did that throughout his years at Cambridge. Then, just fortuitously, he got this invitation to travel on the Beagle. He leapt at it. Um, he had some trouble, actually, uh, you know, getting it because his father initially opposed the trip. And then he went on this glorious five-year trip around the world, despite the fact that he was badly seasick every day on the high seas, uh, it opened up his eyes to the world of nature in a way that I guess he could just not have anticipated. And it pushed him to start thinking. And once Darwin started thinking, he thought deeply and deeply, more deeply, and never stopped thinking. And the questions that confronted him were the questions of the age, which was, you know, is evolution uh, a fact, and how could it have happened? Uh, he became, I guess, obsessed with this. 
um, and um, and as we all know, came up with a with a resolution. Um, what uh, interests me in him is he's perfect uh, specimen of his age. That is to say, he was a Victorian. He um, assumed the hierarchy of Victorian values were the true ones. That is, Europeans were at the top of the totem pole. And yet his scientific nature took over so that he saw a kind of equality among the species. Uh, you know, we're on the same level as earthworms in his scheme of things. How do you see that change in his thinking? What brought it about? Ah, well, certainly one um, one moment of epiphany had to be when on the Beagle... Um, which don't forget had had three so-called savages, what the what the Victorians called savages on board, who had been picked up by the captain Robert Fitzroy in a previous trip, brought to England, dressed up and civilized, and then were being thrown back into their natural habitat. Anyway, when the Beagle arrived at Tierra del Fuego, at the very tip of South America, he saw the Indians, and they were so primitive that they. They just formed this indelible impression on him. He described seeing them running along the banks, kind of uh, foaming at the mouth, and some of them bleeding and huffing and puffing and dressed just in in, uh, in the most kind of primitive uh, loincloths made out of animal skins. And he was frankly shocked at what he saw uh, in terms of, uh, you know, of, of humans. So I think he that actually, in some level, maybe made it easier for him to see humans kind of evolving out of a lesser species, because he certainly thought these were lesser people. And then, of course, when he went to the Galapagos, he saw and was confronted with uh, the notion that on different islands, um, animals like turtles had uh, distinguishing characteristics, which must at some point have led him to believe to, to, to the realization that if you have geographic isolation, species could actually evolve somewhat differently. That would be a key point in his thinking. And that's something that is generally acknowledged now, particularly as it's shown in the Galapagos Islands, which uh, make up about a dozen or so islands right on the equator, 600 miles west of Ecuador. Right, right, exactly. But, you know, while he was there... He, uh, of course, he kept extensive journals, and he wrote uh, one or two interesting, intriguing little passages. Uh, he, he said something to the equivalent of, you know, you almost get a sense of the origin of, uh, of life here. But, but it is clear he did not yet have the theory. It didn't come to him. In fact, he made a major blunder while he was in the Galapagos when he was collecting finches. Um, he did not mark them separately by, by, uh, by location. So he didn't know which island they had come from. He put them all together in, in one bag, and it would have really simplified his deductions later if he had kept them, the, the various specimens isolated. Um, so we know that he did not actually, the, the theory kind of came to him in bits and pieces over the years after he got back to England. It, it wasn't like a lightning bolt that suddenly struck him overnight. It was about 22 years uh, after he visited the Galapagos Islands before he wrote his or published his theory. Yes, exactly. That's really one of the 
elements that prompted me to write an historical novel about him. There, there are three things that intrigued me. One, it did take him 22 years. He was a, like a world-class procrastinator, and he only did it after he got this letter out of the blue from a competitor, Alfred Russell Wallace, who came up with the exact same theory and wanted help in getting it published. Uh, that's what prompted Darwin to finally sit down and write. So he was delaying all this time, you know, spending eight years studying barnacles and that kind of thing. And then there were two other things. He was a world-class hypochondriac after he got back to England. He suffered from unbelievable maladies, uh, and the symptoms are so varied that no single illness can explain them. And um, thirdly, uh, he really never traveled again. You know, this this adventurer who at the age of 22 went around the world, came back to England and basically never left England again. He took one trip to Wales. And so, you know, what could explain the, this kind of interesting array of eccentricities? Well, looking at the theory of evolution, as he expressed it in The Origin of the Species, you speak of Alfred R. Wallace also having a similar theory, mm-hmm. with the concept that the wheel was invented in several places at more or less the same time. Do you know where Wallace got his theory, how it came in? I know the lore of it, which seems to be the truth. Um, Wallace, like Darwin, was influenced by Malthus's theory which is, you know, that the human population would be exploding in numbers and out of control were it not for famine and war and poverty that kept down the numbers. They both had read this book and were were influenced by that train of thinking. Secondly, and this was sort of surprising to me, the theory of evolution was very much in the air and had been before Darwin himself was even born. His grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, believed in evolution. That is to say, he believed that that one species grew out of another that that it would i guess you look at humans you look at chimps you realize there are similarities and so it's natural to assume maybe there was a common ancestor but what darwin did was to come up with the mechanism that could explain how it could happen that is natural selection that was his great advance and wallace came up with the exact same idea in a in a fit uh, about of malarial fever he was in the he was on the other side of the world in the moluccans um doing some research came down with malaria was apparently lying in a thatched hut and the theory just came to him like that like a, a bolt out of the blue in this edition of radio curious we're talking with john darton from his home in new york city about his book the darwin conspiracy which I understand, uh, John, is about 90% accurate and about 10% fiction. I like to say that. The, that is to say all the historical characters actually existed and for the most part did the actions they're, they're shown as doing. Um, but I took significant liberties in two areas. The book is it's really told on, on three different time levels. The modern day, where there's a young researcher looking into Darwin, then in the 1860s, when Darwin is already an old man, uh, he's already published Origin of the Species. He's, he's at his country estate called Downhouse. And then an earlier period when Darwin was on the Beagle. So um, I examine uh, Darwin as an old man through the eyes of his daughter, one of his daughters named Lizzie. And she keeps a journal. And in the journal, she records 
uh, her growing suspicions about her father based on all these eccentricities that she's observing. Well, I made up the journal, and in large part I made up Lizzie's character because uh, she's not really well known to us. Uh, she's a kind of blank canvas, so I use that canvas to paint a portrait. And finally, I, I kind of changed uh, an important fact on the Beagle itself. There was a, a member there of the crew named Robert McCormick, the ship's surgeon, and I make him... He was indeed very jealous of Darwin. Uh, he became a rival because he, he thought he should be the one to send back specimens to London. And I change his, uh, his narrative. And I do all that. Uh, it, it's not an historical novel in that way. It's an ahistorical novel. I violate some of the, the precepts by actually changing facts around. And I do it, you know, for a higher good, I think. You also talk about Charles Darwin having a secret life. Up to a point, without destroying the suspense of the book, Darwin, we know he was plagued by illness, by procrastination, by his kind of phobia about appearing in public to defend his theory. Uh, and, and so I resolve all these various interesting threads in his personality by saying he feels guilty. He feels guilty for something. What is it that he could possibly feel guilty about? Well, an event happened during his five-year trip on the Beagle, a seminal event that, um, that accounts for where he actually got the theory, how the theory came to him, and why he should feel guilty about it, because, uh, in effect, he expropriated it uh, from the most unlikely quarter of all. That, uh, I can't quite say, but... But the intent here, uh, the real intent, is to kind of divorce Darwinism from Darwin the man. So I've changed Darwin's character. I made him, I made him darker than he really was, in all likelihood. I made him possessed by guilt, uh, with a sense almost of original sin. And by divorcing Darwinism from Darwin, I want to really emphasize the simplicity and elegance of his theory, and to highlight, you know, the absurdity of creationism and and its modern evil twin intelligent design. So I do that. Uh, I, I change the narrative uh, for a, for a, an ulterior motive of actually dealing with Darwin's theory as much as with Darwin himself. John Darton, I want you to explain the simplicity of Darwin's theory, but first I want to say that this is Radio Curious, and we're talking in this edition with John Darton, the author of The Darwin Conspiracy, a novel about the life of Charles Darwin. I'm Barry Vogel. John Darton, can you give us the uh, Darwin theory that you describe as sure. very simple? I mean, basically, it is that creatures pass on characteristics to their offspring, which we all know. Occasionally, there are mutations. If these mutations are, are helpful or advantageous to survival, then those offspring will have a better chance of survival. If the mutations are negative, uh, are harmful to the chances for survival, those offspring will not will die out so that over time over a long long period of time species will gradually evolve and change 
And then if they're separated by, say, rivers or mountains or oceans, uh, species that began, uh, that were once one species, might even develop differently into different species. I mean, that's, that's the theory in a nutshell. It's, when I say it's simple, I, I don't mean simple-minded. I mean it's, it's elegant because it explains everything, um, so much so that Thomas Huxley, who was Darwin's great advocate, and described himself as Darwin's bulldog. When he, when the theory, when he heard of the theory, he is said to have remarked, "How stupid of me not to have thought of it," because it's one of those great qualitative leaps ahead, in which suddenly the world becomes understandable if you apply this basic theory of natural selection. He, d- he did not, of course, Darwin himself did not call it a theory of evolution. That word wasn't in common usage. Uh, in in its current sense, back then he called it theory of natural selection, and the, and the famous slogan, "Survival of the fittest," was not his invention. It it came from Herbert Spencer at the time, and Darwin was persuaded to use that uh, instead of natural selection, uh, to use the phrase "survival of the fittest" by Wallace, because it made it clear that it was a kind of random process. If you say natural selection, Darwin realized, well, you might imply there's a kind of entity out there that's doing the selecting. But if you say survival of the fittest, then you're, you're shifting the emphasis and you make it clear that it's really this sort of impersonal force uh, that's acting, a, a selective force. There's not something doing the selecting. Darwin, you know, he did he did become uh, progressively an atheist as he aged. The view that can be seen on the Galapagos Islands now, which is the same as what Darwin saw about 175 years ago, basically the length of two human lives, um, is in the finches looking at the different islands and the different shapes primarily of the beaks of the finches which mm-hmm. evolved to adapt to the food that was available. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I understand Barry you were, you were there. <laughs> That's so right. You see when you when you as soon as you arrive you're struck by it's it's kind of like opening walking through a door to a to a different world because all of the animals and birds um act differently. They're not frightened of humans. They've never been hunted, and so they kind of exist, and you get this sense you're in primordial nature. And the, beach, the, the, the beaks of the finches are, are actually very important in the scheme of things, because there has been a study, um, beginning with um, uh, two professors at Princeton, uh, the Grants, um, in which they went to one island there and studied finches over uh, years and years and years recording various characteristics, including the size and shape of the beaks. And they were able to establish that when, for example, there is plentiful rainfall, um, the beaks uh, in the ensuing generations uh, are actually somewhat different. That is to say, um, they they may be like broader, like a kind of pair of pliers, uh, or, or narrower, like a pair of kind of thin pliers, to get at the seeds. And in times of drought, they have to be broader so they can crack a shell around a certain type of seed, and those are the birds that survive. When there's plentiful rain, 
they actually find nourishment more easily in a, in a kind of little seed that can be extracted with the long, thin kind of wire head uh, pincer-type beaks. So um, they can actually see evolution unfolding in direct response to the climactic conditions. It's, it's a famous experiment, and uh, I drew upon that kind of shamelessly, uh, a book called Beak of the Finch, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book, for the opening chapter of my novel where the main character, Hugh, is involved in this study, and he's all alone on an island. So uh, that kind of ties it together. Well, John Darton, I want to ask about you. You're the son of a former New York Times reporter. You are a New York Times reporter and editor. You've lived in Lagos, Nairobi, Warsaw, Madrid, London, now New York City. How do you see uh, being an editor when you editorialize in the things that you choose to write about as I do, on selecting guests here for Radio Curious. Mm-hmm. What points do you seek to make when you editorialize by producing a work such as you have in The Darwin Conspiracy? Uh-huh. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I've, um, I've drawn a, a real distinction in my working life between fact and fiction. Um, most for... For 39 years, I've worked for the New York Times, beginning as a copy boy, then a local reporter, then a foreign correspondent, and then stints as an editor, both, you know, metro editor and news editor and culture editor. Uh, All that time, I was dedicated to, you know, I mean, I don't, uh, it sounds corny, but a kind of search for truth. I mean, uh, uh, nothing but the facts. And... Uh, I don't believe in in a, a higher truth or a lower truth, just kind of the truth. And the more you deviate from the facts at hand, the more you deviate from the truth. That's on the one hand. Then I had a kind of a, 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 a doctor, you know, that was my Dr. Jekyll. And then the Mr. Hyde in me, working at night and on weekends, would write fiction. And uh, there I just let my imagination go and it's fun to be uh, uh, to work in the exact opposite vein. That is to say, make up quotes, not looking back through your notebook carefully to make sure every word of the quote is accurate, and to just deal with themes that you can't otherwise deal with in in daily journalism. So uh, I keep the that border between fact and fiction very very secure. Uh, and someone, a, a writer called Stacy Schiff wrote a piece last year saying <laughs> the longest unprotected border in the world is not between Canada and the United States. It's between fact and fiction. And I believe that. We have to keep that border in mind so that we don't have these you know, smugglers and traffickers crossing back and forth, re- reporters making up things and putting them in the newspaper, um, things like that, which, of course, destroy journalism very quickly. When you go into the area of fiction and meld it with the facts as you have in the Darwin Conspiracy, it allows you to um, purvey or deliver an underlying message or or theme. Yes, exactly right. I mean, that's that's exactly the point of fiction. Um, You know, it, it, it can start with an essential lie. 
and that's what transforms it from from otherwise what might be just kind of journalism. Uh, in in the case of the Darwin conspiracy, you know, I've, I was struck by the fact that in his day, Darwin confronted the same arguments that are, that we're now hearing again today um, against evolution, and um, back then. There was a, an argument for so-called intelligent design, uh, the same way there is today. Back then, the, the metaphor that was used was a, a watch. And uh, there was a book by a man called Paley called Natural Theology, in which he, he advanced the argument as follows. If you're walking across a field and you come upon a watch, you pick it up, it's beauty and it's, it's, it's kind of a the elegance of its functioning must make you think there is a watchmaker. That was the total argument for the existence of God. And the same argument is used today, of course, by by proponents of intelligent design. In fact, that's the entire argument. Um, You know, uh, they changed the metaphor. If you came upon Mount Rushmore today and saw human figures carved in stone in an immense scale, you must assume there is a sculptor. So uh, Darwin confronted these very same arguments, and uh, what I've done in this case is to recreate, redo the narrative of his life to kind of emphasize um, the the truth of his theory. You know, because I do believe his theory is true, as do you know most scientists who work with in the fields of biology and medicine and uh, evolution. And as you mentioned, you see this as a direct challenge to the concept of intelligent design. I do, I do. I mean, in a nutshell, there's a climactic scene in which there's an exchange of views between uh, the civilized uh, Englishman and, uh, and, an, and an Indian tribe led by the shaman. And uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but the lesson there is... Um, which side does the creation myth lie on? And if you just uh, are a, an observer, a true observer of how nature functions, um, untrammeled by all all the kind of baggage uh, of, of Western thinking, you might come out with a very different conclusion. John Darton, author of The Darwin Conspiracy, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes. I've been on a book tour, and a book tour means there are a certain number of nights in hotels in which you um, have nothing to do but see the town or read. Uh, so I picked up two books, and the one that I would recommend is a book by uh, Orhem Panic, a Turkish writer called Snow. It's a novel, uh, and I think it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, he uses new techniques, um, new techniques of narration uh, to draw you into the world, and, and um, you begin to understand the whole world of um, uh, Islamic fundamentalism uh, and, and kind of modern Turkey and the, and the secularist uh, uh, kind of drive in Turkey and <clears throat> its pull between Western Europe and ancient Islam, it, and it's beautifully written with very strong characters. That that was uh, the book that stood out for me recently. John Darton, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. I enjoyed it. 
John Darton is the author of The Darwin Conspiracy. The book he recommends is Snow by Oren Parmuk. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.